Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're in Ephesians chapter 2. We're looking at the first 10 verses over the next several weeks, this incredible outline of the gospel. And I'm going to read this passage for a mo- in a moment. But can I hit you with a John Piper quote, like right out of the gate? No warm-up, no cute family stories, no illustrations, just straight John Piper first thing in the morning. Are you guys ready for this? Be the kind of person who comes to your Bible expecting to be astonished. Be the kind of person who comes to your Bible expecting to be astonished. A lot of us have read Ephesians chapter 2 before. A lot of us know more or less what Ephesians chapter 2 has to say. And if as you're approaching this passage, you think that there's nothing new to see or feel or imagine from this passage, then I'm going to prophesy over you this morning. I'm going to guess that that's what the next 23 minutes of your life is going to look like. You already know what it says. You have nothing new to learn This will not surprise you. But what if, when we read and pray, we expect God's Spirit to do something that He doesn't always do? We come eager to be astonished by what's right in front of our noses. Can we do that? Can we pray that? Choice is yours, up to you, no pressure. You decide. But let's have that posture as we read and pray from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Hear God's word. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with him, by grace you have been saved, and raised us with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, make us an astonished people. Make us eager for that. Open our hearts for your spirit to move in us. I pray that we see and feel and experience and imagine new things in you and your mercy because you're very eager to do that same thing that we pray. Surprise us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you guys remember, if you were here last week, that it was a, a very dark week, a very dark passage, a very dark sermon, because we studied the first three verses, verses 1 through 3, which dug into our haunted past before we came to Christ, and charged us with, accused us with following three things. We followed the course of the world, we followed Satan, And we followed our passions and our instincts. We did that before we came to faith in Christ. And that has dogged us ever since in our relationship with Christ. Before we became born again, we were not neutral people. 
We were not some days willing and ready to please God and some days we weren't. The Bible strictly says that we were in rebellion. Paul says that we willingly and wickedly followed these three guides. Now God says to us that he is going to return to this world. In the same way that Jesus came 2,000 years ago, God is going to surprise us and he is going to return. He's going to come like a thief in the night. He's going to come at a moment that we don't even expect. And when he does, the scene is going to be dramatic. The best the apostles know to say to describe this thing is that somehow what appears to be the sky is going to roll back and somehow Jesus who dwells in the dimension of heaven is going to descend and he's going to sit on this great white throne of judgment and every single human being will answer to the living God. And if he finds us on that day pre-Christ, dwelling in verses 1 through 3 as a description for us, what could any human being say in response? God on that day, he will look to each of us who has not bent the knee to Jesus, and he will say, you followed the course of the world. You let your culture, you let your subculture be your guide for what is right and what is wrong, what is success and what is failure. You listened not to my word, but to the world, and you patterned your life after it. You followed the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, who comes to do nothing but to steal and kill and destroy. He lied to Adam and Eve. He has been lying ever since, and you believed him. And you banked your life on what he said. And finally, you have responded to every impulse and desire in your heart. I gave you those desires. I gave you those passions to return to me in praise. But you spent them on the flesh and you did what you wanted to do. On judgment day, God will say to those who are outside of Christ, I don't know you. I don't recognize in you the person I created you to be. I don't know you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. God will say that on judgment day. And there is no response. There is no excuse. And there is no justification for our sins. Romans chapter 3 verse 19 says that when the world is weighed by her sin on judgment day, every single human mouth will be stopped in shame. What could I say in response to this? Romans 3.20 continues and says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You have nothing to present in and of yourselves. It is no wonder that Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 that we ended with last week says, We were by nature children of wrath. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In and of ourselves, outside of Jesus, we are guilty, we are ashamed, and we are deserving of this terrifying wrath of God that falls on all humanity.
That's heavy. That's weighty. That's the first three verses of this incredibly important Ephesians chapter 2. If that is true, if we stand in that state from birth, all humanity, what should God's posture be towards us? How could he approach us? What could he say to us? What should he be to us if that is where we stand in rebellion to him? Friends, this is the place to marvel in our Bibles. This is the place to open scripture and be astonished with what it says. Because the Bible tells us straight away Before we can go any further, there is something you need to know about God, and it's in verse 4. Let this surprise you. But God, being rich in mercy. I heard all of that. I understand the condemnation. I understand the judgment that stands over us. Verse 4, but God, here's what you need to know, is rich in mercy. If your God, the God you pray to and talk about and serve, is slim with mercy, he's not the God of the Bible. If your God, the God you speak to on a daily basis, wears a perpetual furrowed brow and a frown, he is not the God of Ephesians chapter 2. If your God, the God you speak to and make deals with, only does good things for you when you do good things for him. He is not the God of Ephesians chapter 2. This God is surprising. He is astonishing. And he is utterly unlike the God we would conceive him to be. This God, the God of Ephesians, the God of the Bible, the God who made the world, is rich in mercy. He's flush With mercy, God has mercy coming out of his ears. God has more mercy than he knows what to do with with respect to his humanity. And when saints have thought about God throughout all history, this is a common thread that is preached through our Bibles from Moses through the prophets that when I think about God, he is a God who is rich and lavish and flush with mercy. When Moses stood on Mount Sinai and he was ready to receive the second copy of the Ten Commandments which feel like a very stern document for us to obey and subscribe to, he heard God say in Exodus chapter 34, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Some 500 years later, King David said the exact same thing in Psalm 103. When I think about God, this is what I think. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 300 years later, after David, the prophet Micah exclaims in Micah 7, God delights in mercy. This is what makes him happy. This is what gets him going is his mercy that he extends. 
In fact, mercy is precisely the problem that the prophet Jonah had with God when he preached the gospel to Nineveh and people began to convert. Remember, Jonah complains, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, I just knew, I've seen you do this before God, I know that you're like this, and I knew you would do this to a pagan people who has hurt Israel. I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. I just knew it. (laughs) I've seen it before, I've seen it in my life. I knew that's the kind of God you would be to the pagan nation of Assyria. God is known generation by generation for better or for worse as a God who is wealthy in mercy. Isn't that beautiful? That's the God we speak of today. That's the God we bow before in worship. What's important to see here is not just that this is in kind of the the retinue of God's attributes. Not just we're rattling off attributes and this happens to be one that God has in his goodie bag that he keeps close at hand. It's not just important to see that that is an attribute of God. What's important to see from Ephesians chapter 2 is that God allows himself to be moved by this generous costly mercy deep within himself. It's not just true about him. It dictates the way that he treats us as human beings. Verse 4 tells us exactly that. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Do you see where the motivation for salvation starts? It is not with us. It is not something that God sees in us. Like when he looks down to the us of verses 1 through 3, he does not say, because of our gifts or our popularity or our wealth or our talents, this is the kind of person I want on my team. I'm going to save this person. He does not find that mercy within us and our rebellion of him. He finds it deep within his own character. Because it is in him, because he is merciful, it flows out of him to humanity. And we who are in Christ are the beneficiaries of the mercy of God. God is rich in mercy. Now I don't know about you, but I see a dark growing trend among women's Bible studies, conferences, and blogs that say the exact opposite than what Ephesians chapter 2 is saying. Ephesians chapter 2 says that the dead are brought to life by the manifold mercy of God. And this false teaching that I keep coming across says that it's more like the limping find their true selves by the encouragement of God. Have you heard this teaching? Have you been exposed to this? In other words, we're not really that bad to begin with. Human beings actually have great potential within themselves that needs to be unlocked and encouraged. And our life with Jesus is more like him coaching us and cheering us to be the best us we can be. 
Now, this teaching has always been around, and it's always been among men and women, but I think it's finding new success among women today, at least from what I'm reading and being exposed to. And I'm going to guess why it finds a home with women more than men today in our culture. And to do that, I need to make two very gross generalities. So forgive me if I offend your gender represented here. But here's why I think this is found in more women's studies today than men's studies. Number one, my first theory is that men don't study the Bible. They just don't study the Bible. So the market for fake Christianity is always going to be bigger among women than it is among men because the market for real Christianity is always bigger among women than men. So men don't study their Bibles, so we're not selling them this kind of fake Christianity. Number two, I don't think men struggle with the idol of self like women do. Let me clarify that. I don't think that men struggle to put themselves at the center of the universe. That's not a battle for them because they like already do it. They don't need someone else to teach them from obscure places in the Bible to start being the best them they can be. They already do that. I don't need a mom blogger to tell me when I wake up in the morning to take a good look at myself in the mirror and say, girl, wash your face. This is all about you today. Crush your life goals. Be the best you you can be. Make time for you. I don't need that. I'm a man. I already do that. The women need this kind of fake Christianity to inspire them to do that. Now, I apologize for those generalities. Maybe some of you men struggle to put yourself at the center of the universe. That's not your idol. I apologize for discriminating against you. But as we said last week, if we begin, even in just weird, slight, sub ways to tell the story of our conversion, as finding our true selves and our greatest potential... God is going to shrink from the God of Ephesians 2 who is the wellspring of mercy and he's going to become nothing but a divine cheerleader. And you can't be satisfied in that kind of God. When you get to dark places in your life, when we come to the end of ourselves and we see the depth of our sin for what it really is and we feel utterly unlovable and are terrified for anybody to know us truly and personally, we do not need a divine inspirational poster that says, you've got this. (laughs) That's not what we need. We need the God of Ephesians 2 that says, I know, I see, and I hold you, and I forgive you in my mercy. That's the good news of the gospel. If we find ourselves in a delicate place this morning or this week as we contend with our sin, if this has been like a season or a year of exposure for us, we've seen like new growth on our sin, warts that have appeared out of nowhere. If we've seen like the new edges of our doubt about who God is and what he says the gospel has done. If we have realized in the past few months our new capacity to be able to hurt other people or we're just now seeing how enslaved to sin we really are, we don't need a pep talk. Girl, you don't got this. You, you've got a lot of things in your life. You don't got this. This is one thing you don't get. 
Because when we begin to pull ourselves out of the center of our story of salvation and sanctification, we make space in our lives to let the God of Ephesians chapter 2 shine on his own behalf. And he is glorious and he is true and he is right. I want to close in the next two and a half minutes by looking at verses 6 and 7. And even as I say them to you, I prayed and journaled this morning, God, I don't just want to be informed by these verses. I want my heart to be transformed and touched by these verses. When God finds us in our trespasses and sins, he finds us as slaves to the world and slaves to the devil and slaves to our passions, that means that our greatest fear as a human being is underway. That means all of a sudden what we spend our entire lives to do, which is cover who we really are, the mask of that has been blown wide open and there is someone who knows us fully and intimately. Every thought, every Deed, every word, every wart, every limp, he knows it, he sees it, we are exposed. And when he does, he does not respond to our sin as it deserves, he responds to his character of mercy. God is rich in mercy and great in love. He is moved to, to compassion because he invented compassion. He's moved to grace because his essence is grace. Verse 6 says three times in one verse that in salvation God wants to be near us. God raises us up with him and seats us with him in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. Mercy is not an impersonal attribute. It's a warm personal invitation. Because God says that even in your sin. In spite of your sin. That you still do even now as a Christian. I want to draw you to myself. Unite you with my son Jesus. And I want to be near you. In my mercy. All this. So that verse 7. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Whatever love and whatever mercy you have already tasted and experienced from God, I know you can testify to that. I know you've seen it and felt it. I know we could go person to person and you could proclaim that, yes, God has been merciful to me. Yes, God has loved me in this situation and in this sin and in this experience and in this suffering. I have felt the mercy and the love of God. Whatever you have experienced up to this point is actually only a fraction of what exists Inside the person of God and what he has in store for all who believe. His mercy is vast, it's unmeasurable, and it is glorious. And we will see it and we will experience it today and tomorrow and forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, show us your mercy. Let us get a taste. 
Let us get a glimpse. Shower us with lavish mercy so that we might turn and praise you that you are rich in mercy, great in love. We praise you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.